This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, we've got a we've got a new friend joining us on this episode. <laughs> you might not know him if you haven't listened to the past two or three episodes. Some uh, some rando Canadian that we found on the street. Well, for this episode, we, we, we needed a rando Canadian. Some rando Canadian we found on the street opening doors for people. Yes. <laughs> Welcome like back. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Mr. Hooper, Mr. Johnny Hooper. Always a pleasure to be here, boys. So we do a roundtable each year for those who maybe are new to the podcast. It's called In the 90s. It's where we take a artist or an artist from maybe just the 80s maybe they were a 70s and 80s artist maybe they were a 60s 70s and 80s artist and we look at their catalog and what happened with them during the 90s and we asked did they survive the 90s or did the 90s sink them some artists have have made it through the 90s without being uh, affected negatively some of them just avoided the 90s like new order they put out one record at the beginning of the decade and said, we're done. We're just going to go do solo projects and we, we'll see you in the 2000s. See you on the other side when these all this sorts out. Yeah. When all, <laughs> Let us all know how this all this goes. We'll be on the other side. We'll see you in the millennia, in the new millennia. Uh, and then we got, we've done stuff on Duran Duran, uh, Metallica, Van Halen, Tom Petty. These have been fun. And uh, this is going to be a fun one too, because on those we typically have, a big round table and, and it in like with the, with the Van Halen, we had some real Van Halen nerds on that one. And I, I say nerds with all love and respect. Um, cause I don't, I'm not as deeply, uh, invested like with kiss as well in the, in the history and every, everything that goes on with the, the previous decades. But this is an artist that I'm fairly invested in, um, in so much that, uh, I, I basically learned to play guitar by listening to this man's albums because I, I picked up, uh, you know, early guitar tabs from websites in the nineties and started figuring out D chord and C chord. And that was enough to get me through a couple of these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about Neil Young. He was selected by our patrons and, um, it was a interesting round table. I put together, I guess you'd say like three iconic artists, really. Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, and Black Sabbath. Now, when we were talking or when we were, you know, getting the voting going, um, I didn't know where this was, was going to go. And it went, it ended up splitting the vote um, 50% to Neil, 25% to Bruce and Black Sabbath. I thought Black Sabbath would, might pull it out because they have the, I guess you'd say the most uneven a decade uh but it didn't happen so yeah, I think they, they had like three singers and 
the nineties. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was least. a biz- bizarre decade for black Sabbath. Maybe we'll get to them in the, um, in some, in the future, or maybe somebody will suggest a record that we can talk about. Uh, cause Whitney Wheeler voted for them. Um, Gavin said they were kind of a parody. Uh, he voted for Neil Young. Johnny, you of course voted for Neil Young. Mm-hmm. Um, David Gorgos, he went with Bruce because uh, it's kind of an uneven decade for Bruce. Um, he, there's some good stuff and then there's some not so good stuff and he sort of returned in the 2000s. And then um, Darren Lehman also went with uh, with Neil. So this is a case where the comments definitely reflected the poll. And, and to, I think, summarize all the episodes we've done so far and all of those in the poll except for this one, which we'll get to. Um, I think it's fair to say the nineties definitely affected all of those artists in some way or another. Yep. Changing their, making them push harder or not put any music out or experiment or go in different directions. They certainly had an impact. So we'll see how Neil, Neil fared. So uh, what was the first album that you got into Neil Young, Johnny? Do you recall? Uh, for me, uh, it's actually the, I feel like the record that kicks off his 90s is a record that comes out in 89 that you guys talked about previously was Freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom was this bolt out of the blue, the, the, uh, the second, third coming of Neil. He had the worst 80s imaginable. He was sued for not sounding Neil enough when he, when he signs with uh, DG uh, with the yep, by David Geffen. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, he, he finds himself back on reprise records by 1989. And it's just like this, the second coming. He's this record is, has got quite a, um, a number of nuggets on it. And his performance on Saturday Night Live is just one of the best I've ever seen. I'm, if, if you need to go back and take a look at it. But of course he does uh, Rockin' in the Free World and um, I believe it's No More, if I'm not mistaken. And so that's where uh, I kind of came, came to life with Neil. Uh, I had heard quite a bit of the stuff growing up through the 80s, you know, when he's doing, uh, you know, the, the different incarnations of, uh, like he did the, the trans period that he did. and, and With a vocoder. Yeah, but which actually I feel ages pretty well. I've got to be honest with you. But for me, it's it's freedom. And that kind of just led into the 90s. And I was off and running with him uh, all through the 90s. Hey, look who's joined us. It's Phil Fleming. Hello. Welcome back to the program. We were just talking about the album that we got into Neil Young on what would you say, Phil, is the album that you were like, hey, who's this Neil guy? <laughs> oh, um, hard to say. I mean, unfortunately, I am the son of of uh, uh, Neil Young fans from the 60s, like Buffalo Springfield. So it's been around the whole time, but. Right. So it's just in the ether. Yeah. But uh, in my like from a personal standpoint, when I finally like got Neil Young was definitely the Ragged Glory record from 1990. 
I just remember seeing the millions of glowing reviews for that particular record. And uh, uh, Neil Young's subsequent adoption into the grunge pantheon certainly helped things. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, yeah, it, about- it was ragged glory. <laughs> Jay, have you before doing this podcast had you listened to any full uh, Neil Young records? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I, you know, I, growing up on Cleveland radio, I mean, he was just a staple all the time. Cinnamon you know, all, Girl, all the '70s stuff. I yeah, mean, even like in the '80s, I mean, he would get this notes for you. I remember that um, getting mm-hmm. a lot of play. So. Yeah, he. I'm more of a singles guy. Um, yeah, I mean, I've listened to some albums here and there. I mean, I was just listening to uh, that homegrown album he put out um, this year, and um, I'll sample. You know, we put something new out. Um, I don't know that there's been any particular that I've um, maybe harvest, but other than that, like I'm more of a singles guy. Gotcha. I like a lot of people. I saw him on mtv with rocking in the free world that was probably my first exposure to him and then i remember hearing on like you know classic rock radio cinnamon girl and stuff but i didn't really make the connection that it was who this was and i didn't know his backstory um it wasn't really until uh i got to college and a couple different bands that i liked covered the song everyone everybody knows this is nowhere um, there's a band called Throneberry out of Cincinnati and they do a cover of it. And then, um, I want to say that either Sunvolt or uncle Tupelo or one of the alt country bands from the nineties covered it live. And so I looked it up on a guitar tab and I was like, Oh, this isn't that hard. It's like G and C I can figure this out. And, um, that was like one of the first songs I learned to play. And then I got the record and, um, pretty much all the 70s stuff i've owned either on vinyl or cd um and then in the 90s with uh well, well we'll get into it but i got a lot of those records as they were coming out because i was sort of like figuring out neil young as i was figuring out guitar playing so i was always trying to like play along with whatever he was doing uh more so the chords than the soloing because i am not a solo uh <laughs> master <laughs> i'm not a shredder uh the way that uh Neil is. Um, so Johnny, you mentioned his eighties, the eighties for Neil Young are insane. They are. They are. I mean, it, 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 you kind of watched him almost willingly go down to the bottom of the barrel. Well, it starts with Hawks and Doves, which was basically a leftovers album of seventies material mm-hmm. that he put out. That was um, for reprise, and then he did Reactor with Crazy Horse, which, which is was a, the same, which was also trunk material, right? Because he was under contract to produce an album a year under the original deal. So then he goes to Geffen, and he was dealing with his son and and his right son, palsy and and things like that. And yep. uh, so he was at, by then, he, he was at, he was just throwing together albums just to fill the contract. So he signs a deal with the, with Geffen in the 80s. 
just to give the backstory on, on where Neil's at. And the first record he produces for them is Trans, which is a record of him. It's like a, a vocoder record. It's it's yep. a, it's if you were expecting Russ Never Sleeps and you got Trans as David Geffen, <laughs> you'd probably have a shit fit because that's not what you're expecting. So then, OK, that's 82. What's he going to do in 83? He puts out a rockabilly album with the shocking pinks called Everybody's Rockin'. Um, okay. This is when David Geffen su- threatens to sue him. Well, the, no, it actually, it was when he he produced the, I think, I think Everybody's Rockin' was a reaction to Old Ways, which was a straight up. Oh, yes. Old Ways. Record. Which and got delayed for a Geffen, number of years. Geffen's like, I need I need more of a rock and roll record. And so he does a rockabilly record, <laughs> which was everybody's rock. <laughs> and that's when Geffen sued him for producing music that is not like Neil Young. For not sounding like himself. Yes. Which um, is amazing because on the flip side, John Fogarty got sued by his record label for sounding too much like himself. Yes. Ridiculous. <laughs> you can't win. So then yeah. that's followed by Landing on Water in 86, um, Life in 87, which is the lowest selling album at uh, uh, in the whole decade for him. Um, right. And then he does this Notes for You with the Blue Notes, which um, was originally the single for that song, the lead track, got banned from MTV. Because he mentions products, he skewers a whole bunch of corporate, corporate, uh, corporate folk. Guess what video won the the, the award for best video of the year that year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we see uh, that for that that was kind of the beginning of the of the rebirth of Neil Young. I mean, because because the the whole thing with Geffen in the in the eighties was was that they they promised him the moon like complete creative control and a whole crap ton of money and so he took full advantage of that he made he made the records that he wanted to make and then they then they said you know what the hell can we can we get something we can actually sell and then he produced landing on water which some people may not realize has zero bass in it. Yep. <laughs> it's all keyboards. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a hard record to like if you if you're expecting Harvest or Zuma and then you listen to Landing on Water, it's like mm, uh I I that's not one of my favorites. No. Um so he starts to sound like himself uh, again, um, which makes David Geffen happy with the well, uh, 89 well, album. For you was back on reprise. Oh, that's right. You're right. It, he wrote out his seven years on Geffen and went be- right back to reprise and made a blues record. And the, that particular single was was all that it needed, all that people needed to to realize that he's still very viable. 
Um, so freedom we did for our, one of our eighties episodes. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, you can join us at Patreon to hear that episode in all of our eighties episodes. Uh, and then that's followed up almost, uh, you know, not immediately afterwards. Cause there's some, well, it's, yeah, it's about a year later. Um, you get ragged glory, which is, Was that one with Crazy Horse? Yeah, that's with Crazy Horse. Yes. Um, this would produce shortly after the tour records, um, Weld <laughs> and Arc. Yes. Now, what's interesting is that, and, and Johnny, you mentioned this in your comments, who were they touring with at the time of Weld? Or who was Neil touring with? Social Distortion and Sonic Youth. Hello. That is a crazy lineup. Yep. But it shows that Neil Young is like tapped into, he's paying attention essentially yep. to what's going on. I mean, this is, is Sonic Youth on DGC at this point? Yes. They are. And it's Thurston Moore that gets uh, Neil very interested in feedback. And that's what, of course, ARC goes on to be. It's this. <laughs> ARC is 35 minutes of feedback. Exactly. Right. <laughs> It's his metal machine music, basically. Basically, yeah. Um, so what's everybody's... Uh, those are... I kind of lump all those records together. Um, what's everybody's opinion on that era to start off the 90s? Um, is that a strong start for Neil between those three records? I, I noticed like Ragged Glory seemed to me to be like freedom is a little um, spotty in terms of like different styles and different sounds. But Ragged Glory is like this is a electric yeah. guitar, well, the, um, blues and country based songwriting, but like it, the format is very focused and yeah. cohesive. Yeah. Is that like. Well, that stand out, stand out to everybody else, and then it, he kind of uses that sound throughout here and there throughout the '90s. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the Freedom album was almost like framed in the in the same way that um, Rust Never Sleeps was, with it with a more with a more acoustic side and then an electric side, um, and with it. And Ragged Glory is almost, in the way, a a live in in the studio record. Sure, it is. Because look at the album cover, for God's sake! Right, right, yeah. It's them I mean, jamming. It was recorded in a barn, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. That's in, exactly in like a, what that is, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like it, like live takes everything except vocals were done live. Yep. Even some vocals are done live, actually. 
but um which which lent to you know the arc weld live material perfectly mm-hmm. you know with mansion on a hill and and that and all of that love to burn oh yeah 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 i think that record jay is the record i wanted freedom to be like freedom's pretty uneven yeah whereas ragged glory seems like a much more cohesive record yeah yeah that was my impression i mean i think the stuff that we responded to or at least i did uh, freedom was closer to this and then once i spent time with this record it's like okay this is where it was going this sounds like a cohesive idea and then yeah it extends out to the live albums which just extend this and just make it even more like bring in some classic stuff but then also just make it even more over the top from a performance standpoint so after putting out this you know loud record and this loud touring album um he returns a year later after weld with harvest moon obviously a nod back to harvest um from uh 1972 this is 1992 i think that or is it 1991 that that comes out 92 92 so it's 30 years um i can contains some iconic songs uh not just for this decade for but would show up you know on uh set lists and and um he would play songs from that record on the upcoming mtv unplugged um I I list uh, Harvest Moon is like one of my favorite Neil Young records. Um, the song Harvest Moon is just mind-blowingly good. It's so simple and it's and it's so good. Um, he, I think you know some people struggle with his voice. I know my wife is one. Um, I I do too. That's why it took me so long to get into him. And that and, to me is the song that is like perfect use of his voice where it's, it's fragile and you can hear the, the vulnerability in his singing um, on a song like that, where I think it sometimes he, he, when he overwhelms it with distortion and volume, um, it has a, it doesn't have the same effect. So what's uh, what's all your opinions on harvest moon? Well, he I goes do. back. He goes back, and I mean, he doesn't he work with some of the people that we worked with on Harvest. Oh yeah, yep. Oh yeah. So you've got Been down to the background singers like Nicolette Larson and Emmy Lou Harris. That um, makes a huge difference for me. Yeah. Like, not to say like for me, like his voice then makes sense in a whole different way when you hear him singing harmonies with 
you know, Linda Ronstadt in the background. It's like, yeah. oh, wow. Okay. She's like, and it also takes you back to like his Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young time where it was like, okay, his voice fit into that mix in a very specific way that nobody else's could. And it kind of pulls that, that thread through. Um, so I enjoyed this a, a ton. I mean, this Harvest Moon to me sounded like if you told me it was released in the seventies. I'd say, yeah, like it doesn't sound, sound anything like a nineties record to me. It just sounds like a classic mm. Americana folk rock record. I wonder Johnny. why, does, does anybody know why he decided to do that? It seems like such a random time to have. Well, um, it's Neil. <laughs> right. It, well, I mean, after, after that year long tour of nothing but feedback and enraging, raging electric guitar, he wanted to do something calmer. And he, and if I'm not mistaken, there's a couple of the songs, I couldn't tell you which ones, that even date back to the period of the Harvest record. Um, but, I mean, my, my take on the Harvest Moon album is very minimal, mostly because I wanted more of the <laughs> Raging Electric Guitars. Um, <laughs> um, but I could... I could appreciate it, you know, in hindsight and everything. Yeah. I did. I like the balance between his records. Um, I, I like when he goes from, you know, a, a, a blazing rust never sleeps to a, a or, f- you know, from a, a quieter record to a, a loud record and, or even within the same record doing half and half. Like mm. that's part of the appeal to, to his unevenness is part of the fun. Well, and I, I, I would not have responded the same way to this record at the time as I would now. Like this is more resonates when you've got a couple years under your belt mm-hmm. <laughs> versus oh, you know when you're in your early twenties and you just want to hear loud guitars, which I could you know I would have been in that place too, in the aggression. Um, whereas now I listen to this, I'm like, okay, all this makes a lot more sense than it would have when I was 22 or something. So the next year is his unplugged album, which, as I mentioned, features um, songs from Harvest Moon, as well as throughout, you know, songs that go throughout his career. Um, Most of the I think there's four songs that aren't aren't captured on the record that he performed live. But, um, you know, this is where I'm still like getting into Neil Young. So I hadn't heard some of the more uh, uh, album tracks. And I I had not gone back to his band days, you know, from uh, working with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and, and other bands. So when I heard like Mr. Soul and, and stuff like that, I was like, oh, I have, I guess I have more to check out. Um, but what's weird is that, I you know, I listened to this record and I, I really liked the performances you know, from Hank to Hendrix is great and like a hurricane. Um, that version of it is really great, but it it's, d- did not get reviewed well, which is, I find odd. Um, even in Rolling Stone, which is, you know, I think on the spectrum of liking Neil Young, they gave it like a, they gave it like a three out of five star rating, uh. which I found odd. I don't know. I don't know if it was some sort of, 
backlash for for what he had done in the previous decade and messing around. It's but, entirely uh, possible. No, with Rolling Stone, it, I mean, it, it. A couple of things are guaranteed with Rolling Stone. Okay, you two will get five stars. Period. Yep. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen will get four stars. Period. You know, it it doesn't matter if they're just burping for forty five minutes. Still get four stars. REM will get four, at least four stars, period. You know, um, but Neil Young, I'm not, I'm not sure how much in favor he is with Rolling Stone, but they've always, they've always been a lot more critical of him. They, like they go through the material with more of a fine tooth comb than they do with, say, Billy Joel. <laughs> I don't want to hear any slander of Billy Joel. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Rolling Stone loves Billy Joel. Four stars. Mm. Period. <laughs> that's 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 where that's where Rolling Stone and I meet is is our Billy Joel appreciation. Um, Johnny, your thoughts on the unplugged? I think it's one of the seminal unplugged recordings. Frankly, I think um, the selections of songs are so interesting, and the way he performs them are so interesting. To take yep. Transformer Man uh, from Trans and turn it into this beautiful acoustic rendition is phenomenal. Uh, Look out for my love, long may you run. These these are like absolutely timeless renditions of these classic songs. I I am I was mesmerized at the time, and I find it no less so now. And his catalog is really ideal for Unplugged. If you think about it, I mean, oh, absolutely, and his talent, right? So he yeah. can take. Yeah, like you mentioned, like some oddball songs that you wouldn't expect to be done acoustic, but then he's also got some that you work great acoustic, right? Are written that way, um, yeah. which work. And obviously, he's got the talent to perform it, any of those songs acoustically by himself, but then brings in some extra players to kind of, you know, fill it in or a backup singer. Well, so it's kind a, of curious that it wasn't. Fun fact about that unplugged, it was actually done twice. Um, the the released version is the second show. Um, I think there were. I remember watching some like MTV documentary about about Unplugged and how Neil Young did did an Unplugged show and MTV loved it and and uh, when they were mixing it for audio release, Neil Young said, "No, I got to do it again." So like. Two three weeks later, he went and did what you hear on record. Oh wow! Interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if there were any, um, well knowing knowing Neil Young, there was probably a much different material performed the first time out. But so, which is the video version that ran on? Oh, okay, the second. So version. he did it in front of an audience both times. Yes, got it. Well, you know, Neil Neil has been known to be particular about his audio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's got a thing about that. Yes. Um and uh so to follow up the MTV Unplugged in the next year, Neil put out Sleeps with Angels. That came out in August of 1994. And from what I've read, uh, a lot of this record um 
was influenced, or at least the title track was influenced by the death of Kurt Cobain, who had quoted Neil um, in his suicide note. Yeah. Um, it was definitely influenced by by a lot of the, the a lot of the alt rock of ninety three ninety four, um, but it, it that one at least for me seemed very reactional to the death of Kurt Cobain. It's very maudlin in nature, except for except for the song "Piece of Crap," <laughs> but. <laughs> Johnny knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Let's just uh, move on. Yeah. Um, I, but it's a, it's a very moody, moody maudlin kind of, kind of album. Yeah. I struggled with this too. record. I struggled with it when it came out. Cause it was the, basically the follow up to harvest moon. And I struggle with it now. It, I just, I can't find the entry point for me on this. Like th- I can't find the song that I connect with and, it kind of goes into the not going to revisit it pile um, for Neil. I agree. Okay. It, it is a tough one to, to find your way into. I, I don't mind the title track, but yeah, it's a, but that's, that's Neil too. You know, he's, he's always recording something and uh, his quality control is not necessarily the best. Uh, but I, I still admire the effort, I guess. Yeah, I like the track Sleeps with Angels. Um, I also liked, to me, this record balanced the acoustic and the electric in a different way, like you would intertwine the two a little bit more. It was done with, also done with Crazy Horse. Yeah. So it sounds a, it's a, it's a little bit more layered. There's some extra instruments in it that you don't typically hear in his stuff. So, but it's still cohesive. It's not like half of album this and half an album that it's a little bit more blended um i don't know if the songs are as strong as some of the other albums but um i didn't have a prior experience but i remember when it was out it wasn't nominated for a grammy or something i remember getting a lot of attention but um i hadn't spent much time with it until i was prepping for this and i i kind of enjoyed it in terms of like if you don't if you want to Neil Young album that's kind of down the middle, not all folky, quiet, and not all blistering fuzz. It kind of hits that sweet spot. Um, I do want to mention this is the last record that he recorded with longtime producer David Briggs, who passed away a year later. Pete basically recorded almost every record he did up until this point. And he also worked with artists such as Alice Cooper and Spirit and Nils Lofgren and Nick Cave, Royal Trucks, who we'll be talking about um, in a future episode. But uh, this this is a sort of an end point in terms of him being a, a collaborator with Neil in the studio, because um, the next album is produced by Brendan O'Brien. And that is, I'm sure, going to be the controversial Mirror Ball. <laughs> which is um, Neil backed by Pearl Jam. Well, basically everybody in Pearl Jam, but Eddie Vedder, who just kind of built out a few lyrics here and there. And then um, I don't know, maybe he clapped on, on some songs or something like that, but it's basically, you he, know, he got, he got him beers. Yeah. Right. 
It was. Uh, hey, uh, we're gonna do another take. Eddie, could you run to the fridge and get us some beers? We need some triangle on the track. <laughs> do you want to pick up that triangle? That's cool. We, we can always mix it out. Either that, or we call Linda McCartney, and <laughs> your choice. There you go. Oh. Like so this okay. took place, or this was recorded over four days, uh, two two days in January and two days in February of nineteen ninety five, and then it came out in August of ninety five. Um, it came about because um, they had done some like charity shows, and Pearl Jam had backed uh, Neil up and. And then also out of this session comes the Merkin Ball EP, which is two songs that um, Eddie sings uh, that were released. Johnny on- came prepared. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, I, I, I think Mirror Ball, I mean, obviously, when that came out, that was the highlight of my summer that year. Um mm-hmm. I mean, in hindsight, it, it it probably has not aged as well as I would like it to have. Um, but it does sound like they had a lot of fun making that record. It was basically two long weekends, right? That they, right. That they recorded the whole thing, and and uh, it sounded like they just had had great fun jamming on Neil Young riffs, and then they carved it into some sort of songs and Neil Young overdubbing, you know, pump organ over a couple of tracks after the fact. But, um, I mean, has one of my favorite Neil Young songs, Peace and Love. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have gone back and tried to listen to this objectively because I definitely like rocked out to it in the fall of 95 repeatedly. Um, I was super happy because I'm into Neil Young now. I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan at this point. So this is like my two worlds are converging in this loud rock record. Now I listen to it and I go, okay, I like Peace and Love, Throw Your Hatred Down. I'm the ocean act of love. Those are like the songs that kind of work for me. And then there's some other ones that maybe don't work quite as well. Um, song X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a weird <laughs> song to open up with. Um, and uh, I still, even though it's a, it's really just such a simply dumb song. I still enjoy downtown. Um, oh yeah. Just cause it's like, I mean, it's got this, it's three chords, basically. I mean, it just, 
Neo can pull that off. I don't know why. It just makes he just turns the distortion up on that massive amp of his and oh yeah, you know, does what he wants. Oh, so yeah. Jay, I know you were not. Uh, we've discussed this almost <laughs> our entire lives. How really? you, how much you've disliked Downtown as a song. Um, I remember band practices twenty years ago where you were 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 <laughs> angrily uh discussing downtown uh, yeah and i think that's yeah i did not like this when it came out i hated that song i didn't i guess i was the only person in the world that didn't like the pearl the um pearl jam neil young version of rockin and free world either <laughs> um i thought the version he does with crazy horses way 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 better and i think what it struck in me is like i could just maybe because i was at the time getting into playing music and was very familiar with what like rough kind of thrown together, not very sophisticated rock music sounded like, cause that's what you would make. And it just, when I listened to this, I was like, this just sounds half ass. Like it just sounds like a bunch of guys getting together, screwing around and recording it. Um, and I just thought, I don't know, downtown just always was so dumb. Like, it, it, I, I will give, uh, yeah, I will was, give that to you, Jay. It, it is a dumb song. It was dumb, but then it was being elevated as like, no, but this is cool. I was like, no, it's so dumb. I mean, this is dumb as dumb as like an 80s whatever thing you think is not cool right now. This is just a, you know, also not. So I don't know. This just this whole record rubbed me the wrong way at the time. Going back, I actually like it. <laughs> better than what than i did in time i think there's some stuff on here that's like demo level like okay that's a cool song like on the ocean um i actually think big country or breaking country is kind of a cool song um but they're seven minutes long or minimum five minutes long it's hey like, dude okay. neil's gotta take a solo mike's gotta take a solo <laughs> they sound like this would have been the yeah the first weekend you wrote the song right and neil would have probably in other albums like lived with this song for a while and like okay we don't need it to be seven minutes we can get it down to four and a half or whatever and like it would have went through a process <laughs> of jamming it and figuring it out and gotten it down to that and with this record it was like nope that's it so and then I, I, I think that i think that was almost the point because because Harvest Moon and Sleeps with Angels were a little more belabored, um, to and and given Pearl Jam's nature of basically jamming things out and then just throwing it down on tape. Um, at the time, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that at that at in those two and a half weeks or what have you. In 1995, Pearl Jam was more than happy to not be Pearl Jam for a couple of weeks. And well, yeah, Ed, Neil Young's backing band. Eddie was actually not involved, not just because they don't need two singers, but he was dealing with like a serious stalker issue at this time. Yeah, where he couldn't like he had to have security at his house and stuff. And yeah, he he um, couldn't even like walk outside in his yard. Yeah, so. Um, they were like looking for an opportunity to, to not be Pearl Jam for a little bit, uh, 
based on what was going on with with the band. And um, Jay, what did you think of the drumming? <laughs> it is super boring and. <laughs> there's eight minutes of it you're like wow he's gonna play this for eight minutes and never do a fill or anything like and then the next song is like that's the same beat from the previous song and that's has nothing to do with neil young like because you don't when you listen to crazy horse you don't say that like when you listen to ragged glory you're like this doesn't sound like you know it was overthought but it does sound like it was thought but you still see unlike unlike mirrorball ragged something like ragged glory was yeah. clearly rehearsed first. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, Mirabal, it's your favorite drummer, Jay. So I, I wanted to ask. <laughs> Jack um, Irons, of course. I mean, I Jack Irons is not a flashy drummer either. Strange considering he was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I was going to say, he's a funk drummer, isn't he? He's got a little, we got to rub a little funk on that. Right, exactly. And, and he did not play funky at all when in his tenure in Pearl Jam. No. Hey, we <laughs> skipped over a record, um, the compilation album that came out in uh, 1993, 13. Lucky 13. Lucky 13, which was a Geffen release of leftover tracks from the Geffen era, which is... Or not, I don't know if it's a... I don't know if you could try to do leftover or just... Um, with, it was it was basically a best of Geffen, and then Neil Young got involved, and so he threw in outtakes. Right. And um, yeah. It, huh. <laughs> Man, David Guffin must just <laughs> despise <hate> Neil Young. <laughs> like they're like, let's let's make some money out of this deal. Just put out a greatest hits, low cost. Feels like, hey, 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 what are you doing? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he does I got not some, let anyone... Hold on, I got some ideas. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, speaking of uh, longer tracks, that then takes us to um, Broken Arrow in uh, 1996. Oh, yeah. Which opens with a seven and a half minute long song, a nine minute song, and an eight and a half minute long song. Yes. Which, I, you know, I know this is to me, um, well, well, I know this isn't a well-regarded record. Like it got, it got a lot of bad reviews. Um, but I, I love this album. Like I just put this on. If I like the seventies records, like tonight's the night and, uh, or Zuma where they have these like long building songs that go on for like seven, eight minutes. And this gives me those, those songs where you just get these long uh, tracks with three minute long solos in the middle. And um, is it the strongest songwriting material? No, but it felt like the closest getting back to some of his seventies sounds um interestingly a lot of his stuff has been reissued this record has not been reissued so if you want the vinyl it's like 200 bucks <laughs> good luck um it, it broken hour didn't really do a whole lot for me i mean probably because all of the all of the long epic 
tracks were front loaded. Like that's half the more than half the album is the first three songs. Yep. Um, I don't know. It just it, it it didn't do a whole lot for me. I think it's supposed to be difficult. Mm. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be. I think he front loaded it like I'm gonna make this. A, a a crazily um dense record of just guitar playing uh and and not care i don't know johnny and where does this i see you have the live <laughs> album the year the horse back there oh yeah and um well i want to totally agree with you on broken out i love this record like I feel like people just are missing the boat on this thing. I think the the riffs are really memorable to me. Like I, there's a there's just a moodiness that kind of flows from track to track, and I find it. I just come back to it time after time. Yeah. And there's just kind of lyrical stanzas that just resonate with me. I I really enjoy this record. I think. Um, People just seem to be missing something here, and yeah, like you say, it's difficult. It's not. It's not an easy, accessible record to make. But, but this is like kind of prime Neil for me. I, I really, yeah, I love this record, and I love his guitar tone so much. And I think this record is really, it brings that to the fore for me. Uh, Jay, what do you think of this record? I haven't spent a ton of time with it. My impressions were it was kind of a, it felt like a bookend maybe to Ragged Glory. I wasn't hearing the songs though. Um, so, which makes sense based on what you guys are saying. Like it's more of a performance record and a little bit more moody and takes a little bit more time to get into. But that was my impression though out of the gate was like, oh, this is kind of like maybe a bookend for the for the 90s in terms of just the sound of it and sort of the overall feel to being more riff based and electric and whatnot is this crazy horse on this yes yeah. it is yep and also this year 1996 is the dead man soundtrack for the <laughs> jim jarmusch movie which if you're expecting like i was songs no, I, uh, no. I, I remember when that came out, we were, 
I remember just basically we were warned that there were no songs. It was more atmospheric. Um, it was a lot of it was done in real time. Like he was he was screening the movie and playing along. Um, at least that would that's how it was initially uh, started, as far as the recording is concerned. Um, I mean, they they put in dialogue snippets later, but uh, and that was the uh, dawn of his label Vapor Records. Yep. Which had some interesting signings. Oh, still has one to this day that I know of. Is that Neil Young? Tegan and Sarah. Oh, Tegan and Sarah. Mm-hmm. Cake-like. Yeah. Cake-like, yes. Cake-like put out, put out two actually quite good records on paper. Yeah, they are good. Um... And then this record was followed, uh, well, not this record, but uh, 96 was followed by the 97 tour documentary that was recorded by Jim Jarmusch, uh, Year of the Horse, which just so happens to be sitting behind Mr. Hoover there. Now, is that your favorite Neil live album? Oh, it's Weld all the way. Weld is one of my all-time. <laughs> Weld okay. is the best. So if you're ranking, so let's say you got to rank, um, what is it? Rust never, or Live Rust, Weld, Year of the Horse. What's the order? I'm going Weld. Live, no, Weld, Year of the Horse, Unplugged. Oh, ah. oh, ah. and uh, over go. live rust. Oh. Yeah. yeah, live rust still sounds a little. I mean, it's you know, obviously, we're looking back at time, it just sounds a little thinner to me now, but um, especially compared to Weld, it's massive, it's massive, it sounds so good. It's true. Oh, can't get enough of it. So good. Oh, wait, though, I gotta say, Year of the Horse, there's it starts it starts off with a great version of when you dance. Mm-hmm. So cannot complain about Year of the Horse. <laughs> There's big shows that are happening all through this decade. So we've already talked about, you know, them playing with or what Neil playing with social distortion and Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to see them, Tim you're a Buffalo Boy. Do you know Exhibition Stadium in Toronto? Yep. Okay, so he played there with uh Supporting him are Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Blues Traveler, and his backing band is Booker T and the MGs. Jeez. With Steve Jordan playing guitar. Oh my goodness. That is a yeah. that's amazing. I'd even that's sit through Blues Traveler for that. Two years, <laughs> two years before uh Mirrorball even comes out, they're playing these shows together, right? And uh, I'll never forget, I'm sitting by an exit. As Pearl Jam is on the stage, I've had five, and I'm not joking, five drunk guys ask me, when's Pearl Jam going on? They're on now, you idiot. Uh, (laughs) Too many Molsons. Too many Molsons. Clearly. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then, uh, so that that's 93. And then in 96, again, here locally, uh, up in Barrie, they're playing a big show with Oasis, right? So like Neil is popping up here all throughout the decade in various guises and with various support acts and keeping very relevant. And, um, you and doing it almost effortlessly too. Yeah. Yep. And you well, know, his festival appearances in Europe during that whole time, they're mind blowing shows. Yeah. Um, I, I, I honestly wished that there was more of an extensive tour for Mirrorball with, with Pearl Jam as the backing band. It would have been interesting to hear like an official live document of that. Yeah. Cause it, cause I mean, in, with, you know, probably half of Mirrorball inserted between, you know, Powderfinger and Cortez the Killer. And well, I just read the other day, apparently on the Neil Young archives site, there, there is some sort of tour film of that time period. Ooh. I mean, it, wasn't it only like maybe? be like eight shows yeah it's i think it's a limited run for sure it was very limited it, it was not a full-fledged tour yeah. i need um, i need a um a tour document in the same way that there's that jimmy page black crows uh you know tour oh that they, yeah that needed that needs the documentary i would have loved to to have seen that and reading steve gorman's book around that tour oh my <laughs> um, I do want to mention you mentioned about him backing or having different backing bands and stuff in 98. Um, you know, Neil is one of the founders of Farm Aid and Fish played at Farm Aid and um, they played together for a couple of songs. And then he asked them to be his backing band for a tour in 1999. And they were like, yeah, no, that's okay. So he's pretty much like wanting to hang with every. He just wants to hang out with people. Like if you're around and you jam, he's going to ask you to be his band for a tour. Like it's just going to happen. Like, well, hey, they, guys in Green Day, be my band. That's that's kind of the cool thing about Neil Young's just uh, just um, like work ethic. He he clearly loves playing and being up on stage and loves it. Loves recording because I mean his his output in the last. 10 years has been almost double what he did in the seventies. Um, I mean, with varying results, mostly because he has a different backing band for every record, um, including one that was done completely solo, just him and his guitar, uh, Lenoy's, right. which, which was surprisingly effective. Yeah, it's great. Daniel Lanois knew what he was doing with with creating ambience with yeah, just right. an electric guitar. Perfect uh, producer for that record. Um, so we mentioned everything that Neil put out, but this isn't everything that Neil was involved with. Neil put out a new Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young record in 99. Um, he, <laughs> he put out, uh, or he was... Involved in records as a as like a guest, the the list is crazy. Um, I mean, he's always involved in stuff, but in um, where's my list? 
his guest appearances in the 90s. He played on a Robbie Robertson record. He played on a Randy Bachman record from Bachman Turner Overdrive. He played on a couple of songs for Nils Lofgren. He played um, on an Emmy Lou Harris record. He did a song um, with Linda Ronstadt. He did a uh, couple of other ones um, with where like live performances for, or, or uh, there was like a, yeah, there was like a live concert for Bob Dylan's like a 30th anniversary concert. And he did songs for that. Um, Then there were the bridge school concerts. Um, So it's, you know, besides the fact that he put out a ton of music on his own, he was also flying around to studios and hanging out with people and playing on their records. And I, here's the question. Is Neil Young the closest to the, to a mainstream artist as we have to Robert Pollard? (laughs) He just never, he never not had all this stuff that's coming out through his archive series. If he had put it out in the seventies, he put putting out two to three records a year. Easily. Um, yeah. Cause the, the, the number of, the number of shelved projects probably number the amount of released projects. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's put out in the last couple of years, um, from the, uh, re-releases not re-releases but i guess they're you know the archival releases um what probably like four records three three or four records was uh if i'm not mistaken all of them but one of them was live material though okay well he announced another new one uh like this week um (laughs) i think what, what makes him different though is yeah i mean a lot of the stuff is his material but i mean he is involved in other projects where he's not necessarily the sole songwriter which is right that's fairly unique to find somebody that's able to float around like that because i was thinking like prince well now prince not going to play on somebody else's record like he's prolific but it's all his stuff and the same with bob pollard well yeah. i will say that prince have you read the, or have you listened to the, um, originals double album, which is like 30 tracks of stuff that he wrote for other people? Yeah. Like, I didn't realize how much writing he did for other people. And oh, and that's yeah. just the I, stuff that he did demos or did recordings of. It doesn't even include like things that he didn't do recordings of, but are still, he still wrote for other people. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, but yeah. he wouldn't, he's not going to go play guitar or Sing. right yeah no he's he's not one to be a guest musician <laughs> no no no. He's, yeah. he's done it very very little i mean the, the the one the one the one that came to mind is he he appeared on an ani defranco record in 99 um on a song called providence hmm. uh i'm trying to think of yeah, he's not he's not really the type of person that is a guest musician. He's he's either all in on a track or not at all. Yeah, I'm having a hard time finding an analog for for Neil Young. And that's the thing, like they're really I don't know. I mean, there is in terms of stature, 
you could say like, well, there's yeah, yeah. Bruce Springsteen, but Bruce Springsteen has a much different uh, level of quality control <laughs> yeah. than uh, than Neil has. Uh, he's he's much stingier on. I mean, he obviously, you know, when you look at like his box sets that he's put out, he's obviously got a lot of material, but he doesn't. He's not throwing out an album every year or every two years. So that I don't I don't know there's anybody or maybe Dylan. I mean, Dylan's still active putting out records, although he's doing a lot of like covers and stuff, you know, alternating between originals and, and that. So I don't, maybe there isn't. So here's the question. So it would appear that Neil survived the uh, the 90s pretty well in, in terms of um, keeping his artistic integrity intact. Not he it almost like you know, we talk about bands that like tried to fit into the nineties, change their sound. Um, you know, that were, you know, eighties bands, um, trying to figure out who they were. It's almost like the nineties came to him. Like they Pearl jam adjusted to, you know, and all these younger bands were like recognizing Neil Young as being important. Um, as the quote unquote godfather of grunge, it was a term thrown around. Well, I mean, for for a for a band like Pearl Jam, I mean, if you listen to Ten, a lot of the a lot of the riffs and stuff are '70s style arena rock riffs. Mm-hmm. What what made them really alternative for 1991 was the lyrical content. Um, and a lot a lot of bands, especially in the early '90s their framework was Zuma or everybody knows this is nowhere. Um, and so it only seemed like the right thing to do to acknowledge Neil Young. Yeah. It, it, um, it, it, it just made sense that way. I mean, I mean them touring with social distortion that, that surprised me a little bit. I knew we toured with Sonic Youth, but not Social D. Um, especially since Social D's, like, their aesthetic is more punk and, like, 50s rock and roll rather than Neil Young. Rockabilly? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the image is straight out of Rockabilly, but... Right. But it, it was definitely more, more of a, a punk aesthetic rather than, you know... The, what what Neil Young did in the early seventies. His, I'm thinking of it now. His '90s output reminds me a little of Tom Petty, which we did a roundtable on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some range there, but for the most part, it's still Tom Petty, right? Well, um, I was going to say for Tom Petty, um, the, I mean, the, well. The, Tom Petty is is very consistent with with his quality, and he worked with Jeff Lynne for the first like two three years of the nineties, um, and then Rick Rubin right afterwards. Two people that are very meticulous for very commercial records. Um, one of one of Neil Young's best qualities, and like not best qualities is he's very consistent in his inconsistency. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that's it. That's something that we could definitely count on with, for Neil Young. There's a little bit of random in there all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, with with Tom Petty, with Tom Petty, you're his his songwriting was definitely more influenced by Bob Dylan than Neil Young. Um, yeah, the just, vocal delivery. Yeah, yeah. I, I just um, mean it's like how the '90s affected or didn't, and it it kind of his reaction to the decade to me feels closer to Neil Young than maybe some others okay. in that like they kind of did their thing. They explored some different opportunities. He did some heartbreakers records. He did some solo stuff. He worked with different producers. Yeah. It's not as random as Neil Young. Uh, I don't think there's as much material. I mean, I, I was kind of shocked when we did the research for this, just how much material Neil Young put out in the nineties. It's pretty remarkable. Um, I think you make a great point though, Tim, that the nineties came to him. It's like the stars aligned for, for this, this great rebirth. Whereas you look at somebody like David Bowie and he's trying so hard. It's so painful to watch him go through this metamorphosis of tin machine, rock band, uh, drum and bass, uh, outside and the, and the record that followed like it, that that's, painful to see uh, a guy struggling to kind of find himself in this, you know, this era, whereas Neil was, it was just, it seemed effortless to me. Yep. And very natural and suited him down to a T. Well, hmm. we've spent uh, a, a Wednesday evening talking about Neil Young, which we probably could go on for many hours to discuss uh, all the records in depth, but I think this gives people a, a nice overview of his nineties output and, and how he sort of, uh, you know, he, I don't want to say reinvented himself, but by getting back to some of his roots, uh, as we mentioned with regards to, um, ragged glory and, and, and harvest moon and, uh, leaving the very chaotic and uneven eighties behind really signaled a rebirth for Neil. So he definitely survived and really thrived in the nineties. Uh, so that's, we can put the stamp of approval on, on the nineties for Neil <laughs> young. He get, he, he, he's, uh, he's passed the test. So we need to thank our, um, our guests, Mr. Johnny Hooper and Mr. Phil Fleming, uh, who, uh, helped us go down the, the Neil Young path for this episode. Um, want to remind folks, uh, Patreon, that's where you go. Uh, it's where you get to vote on these episodes. We, uh, you know, we don't choose them. Our patrons do. They said, we don't want to talk about, uh, Tommy Iommi's, uh, ridiculous three lead <laughs> singer run in the nineties. We want to talk about Neil Young. And we said, okay. So, uh, for future roundtables, that's where you go to vote. So for as little as uh, you know, two bucks a month, you get a, our polls and our and our various uh, things going on there. It's also where you get access to the box newsletter that gets sent out every weekend with new reviews of albums relevant from the '80s and '90s coming out today or yesterday or tomorrow, as well as books and uh, movies. And also, want to remind folks. 
leave us some positive feedback. We'd greatly appreciate it over at uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, some nice words would help us uh, uh, rise in the rankings and and take down the evil monopoly that is NPR that uh, has <laughs> long long uh, dominated the uh, the podcast game. Uh, we're coming for you, Terry Gross. So, <laughs> so for, for Jay. Sometimes you got to punch up. You got to punch up. <laughs> Never punch down. Always punch up. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. <laughs>